We've got an awful lot to sink our teeth into this evening. It's been Rishi Sunak's first full day in office, and he's gone up against Keir Starmer for the first time. His front bench have had to field questions about the controversial reappointment of Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. And we know that his big economic statement is going to come on the 17th of November. We'll be talking about all of that this evening. We've got an interview later with Richard Murphy on how Rishi Sunak can avoid crashing the economy. And for the whole show, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? I am actually sick as a dog right now, but I will never miss a chance to come on here and dunk on Suella Braverman. So, so here I am. <laughs> there is no cure to any sickness like dunking on Suella Braverman. Today was the first time Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer went head-to-head at PMQs, and it was a tougher gig for Starmer than he's become used to. He began by going in on Suella Braverman's return to government. Was his Home Secretary right to resign last week for a breach of security? The Home Secretary made an error of judgment, but she recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. And that's why, that's why I was delighted to welcome back into a united cabinet that brings experience stability to the heart of government. And let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, what the Home Secretary will be focused on. She'll be focused on cracking down on criminals, on defending our borders, while the party opposite remains soft on crime and in favour of unlimited immigration. We can all see what's happened here. He's so weak, He's done a grubby deal, trading national security because he was scared to lose another leadership election. There's a new Tory at the top, but as always with them, party first, country second. The Honourable Gentleman talked about party first and country second. Perhaps he could explain to us why it was a few years ago he was supporting the member for Islington North. Sunak, of course, avoided all concrete questions about Suella Braverman. We'll be talking more about that later. But his general counterattack wasn't that bad. Starmer has done more than anyone to trash Corbyn's record because of that. He's a little bit snookered when asked why he backed the guy. Why did you back Jeremy Corbyn if you've been telling us for two years how terrible a person he is? Starmer's in a difficult position there. It was exploited quite effectively by Rishi Sunak. Now, Starmer's next line of attack was this. He went in on the non-dom status of Sunak's wife. The Labour leader suggested that abolishing non-dom status could help save money in next month's budget. The government currently allows very rich people to live here but register abroad for tax purposes. I don't need to explain to the Prime Minister how non-dom status works. He already knows all about that. It costs the Treasury £3.2 billion every year. Why doesn't he put his mouth, his money where his mouth is, and get rid of it? Well, Mr Speaker, I have been honest. We will have to take difficult decisions to restore economic stability and confidence. And my honourable friend, the Chancellor, will set that out in an autumn statement in just a few weeks. But what I can say, as we did during COVID, we will always protect the most vulnerable. We will do this in a fair way. But what I can say, I am glad, Mr Speaker, that the party opposite the honourable gentleman has finally realised that spending does need to be paid for. It is a novel concept for the party opposite. This government is going to restore economic stability and we will do it in a fair and compassionate way. I know he's been away for a few weeks, but he should have listened to what's been going on the last two. But anyway, I, I, I have to say, I'm surprised he's still defending non-dom status. He pretends he's on the side of working people, but in private he says something very different. Over the summer, he was secretly recorded at a garden party in Tunbridge Wells, boasting to a group of Tory members that he personally moved money away from deprived areas to wealthy places instead. Rather than apologise or pretend that he meant something else, why doesn't he now do the right thing and undo the changes that he made to those funding formulas? Mr Speaker, I know... I know, I, I, I know the right. I know the right. Honourable gentleman rarely leaves North London. Yeah. But if he does, 
But if, it, if he does, he will know that there are deprived areas in our rural communities, in our coastal communities, and across the South, and this government will relentlessly support them, because we are a government that will deliver for people across the United Kingdom. But Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, he mentioned the last few weeks. I'm the first to admit that mistakes were made, and that's the reason I am standing here. But that, but that is the difference between him and me. This summer, I was talking. I was being honest about the difficulties that we were facing. But when he ran for leader, when he ran for leader, he promised his party he would borrow billions and billions of pounds. I told the truth for the good of the country. He told his party what it wanted to hear. Leadership is not selling fairy tales. It is confronting challenges, and that is the leadership the British people will get from this government. So Sunak there completely ignored the question about non-DOM status, and he was totally disingenuous when it came to his previous comments on funding formulas. In the clip Starmer was mentioning, Sunak wasn't speaking about an area with high levels of rural poverty. He was speaking to the people of wealthy Tunbridge Wells, a complete rewriting of history from Sunak there. But on the point of honesty in leadership elections, Sunak was actually bang on. His campaign for the votes of Tory members was far more honest than Keir Starmer's pitch to Labour's membership. Keir Starmer promised all of these 10 pledges, completely went against them. Sunak said, oh, actually, I don't think we can have these unfunded tax cuts that Trust wants, and he, and he lost. So I think if you look at both of them, that leadership election sort of in the trajectory of their careers, Sunak does actually look a bit less, let's say, a bit less disingenuous than, than Keir Starmer does. The final exchange we've got for you was on the question of a general election. The only time he ran in a competitive election, he got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. <laughs> so why doesn't he put it to the test, let working people have their say, and call a general election? Yeah! Mr Speaker, he talks about mandates, about votes, about elections. It's a bit rich coming from the person who tried to overturn the biggest democratic vote in our country's history. Our, our mandate is based on a manifesto that we were elected on to remind him an election that we won and they lost. A mandate that says we want a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders and levelling up. That is the mandate that I and this government will deliver for the British people. There's a bit of a strange attack line there again from Keir Starmer saying, you lost the leadership election to Liz Truss, aren't you embarrassed about that? I mean, you know, if you, in the context of the previous exchange they had, Sunak can say, well, I lost that leadership election because I was honest about what I believed, whereas you won your leadership election because you lied through your teeth. And I also think that much of the public will agree that not holding an immediate general election when a party gets a new leader is less of a constitutional or democratic problem than supporting the overturning of a massive referendum, which everyone beforehand said would be once in a generation. Keir Starmer was, of course, of the faction in the Labour Party that was pushing for a second referendum. And in fact, I think, was the root of many of Labour's problems on that question when in the 2018 party conference, he said, Remain will be on the ballot. That was you know, against the, the policy of the leadership at the time. So uh, I feel like he has kind of left those open goals there for Rishi Sunak to attack him on. Of course, that doesn't mean Sunak doesn't have his own problems, namely the policies of his government, the policies of the last 12 years of his government. But when it comes to integrity, Keir Starmer doesn't really have a leg to stand on, I think. Dahlia, what did you make of that first bout between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak? Should Keir Starmer be worried? Well, first of all, I have to say it is really difficult watching PMQs right now because as we are really suffering the brunt of this crisis and the brunt of the political mismanagement of this crisis, you know, the economic crisis as well as the political crisis, it's really difficult to watch like a bunch of super rich people trading jabs and seemingly finding the whole thing like a fun sport while we're actually dealing with, you know, obscene inflation with our shopping, you know, our weekly shop going up by what, 20, 30, 40%. So that is like, it's quite difficult to stomach seeing them have such a gleeful, fun time um, in the midst of that. In terms of, of whether or not Keir Starmer should be worried, I think it, it's it's probably a little too early to say it really depends on what Rishi Sunak uh, chooses to do with the economy. Is he going to choose 
complete austerity Armageddon? Or is he going to give just enough to keep people off the brink of, of survival? You know, is he going to keep Put, give just enough. He's not. This is not someone who's going to redistribute the wealth or anything. You know, he's not going to do sort of full blown Keynesianism. But is he going to give like enough of a cushion to just just about bring people away from um, the brink of survival, which so many people are being pushed into? Um, it's also going to depend a lot on on media machinations. You know, um, on who the Murdoch press feel is a safer pair of hands uh, for capitalists who can kind of keep the economic status quo whilst also maintaining these stable political conditions that are required for, you know, investment and all of that. So, so it really depends on, on so many things. And I think in a way, Sunak and Starmer are just about close enough that it really does come down to those details. But I would say it, it definitely isn't, isn't a good start. And it is really shocking that given what Rishi Sunak represents, you know, the, the, the egregious wealth, the tax dodging, the anti-democratic way that he came to power, the undemocratic way that he came to power, the associations with the Johnson government and with all of the COVID partying and all of that. It is astonishing that despite all of that, there is enough material on Starmer that Sunak and Starmer can kind of go toe to toe on these things, you know, because as you've said, many of the arguments that he pointed out, that Sunak pointed out, and particularly, I, I think the most powerful line that the Conservatives have against Starmer is the fact that he lied to the Labour Party members about what he would do as leader. And so how can you trust what he would do if he became leader of, of the country? And I've said this before, and I think it still rings true, that this is really the fault of Starmer having backed himself into a corner because throughout the throughout his tenure as as leader of the Labour Party throughout the entire catastrophe that has been this Conservative government whether it's you know the mismanagement of the pandemic the barbaric migration policy all of these things Starmer never focused enough on challenging the actual ideological meat of the Conservative Party his attack line was always about the personal competence of conservative leaders. It was always about, you know, we are in line with the status quo broadly. We're just better deliverers of the status quo. We're more competent at executing the basic principles of the plan that the conservatives outline. And, you know, that worked to an extent with Johnson. It obviously worked really well with Liz Truss because they both deliberately and, un and not deliberately evoked this kind of buffoonish, chaos. But Rishi Sunak is not the same kind of operator. He really projects slickness, he projects competence, and he's not going to, to tank the economy in the same way that Liz Truss has. What he, what he likely will do is slowly drain it of life through austerity politics and, and through general bad economics. But we're not going to see, I don't think, the same kind of spectacular failure that we see with someone like um, Liz Truss. And so if we're going to, as the Labour Party have done, make this a fight about optics and presentation and efficiency rather than ideology, then Sunak and Starmer aren't so far apart from one another. And so we aren't seeing the kind of power being built with the Labour movement and with the kind of dissenting sense that is growing throughout the country, that the status quo isn't working. And that, to me, is really why Stamper is now in this really awkward position and unfortunate position where, and very weak position, actually, where instead of actually winning power from the Conservatives, what we're doing now is, again, waiting for the Tories to concede it through incompetence, fatigue, failure, which is never a good starting point um, even if the Labour Party win, it's never a good point to start a new kind of era of British politics. Not many people watch PMQs, right? So I don't think the next general election is going to be won or lost by who performs best when it comes to these, you know, these weekly outings. I mean, one of the reasons they matter is because there might be party debates, which people do actually watch before a general election, and we can get a good idea of what they might look like by looking 
um, at how they go head to head in in Parliament. What will be the lines of distinction between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, and how will both of them perform when it comes to to debates that people are actually watching? But then it is also, I think, it sort of sets the vibe in Parliament and in the lobby and how both party leaders are talked about. And I think Keir Starmer has really benefited in the last few months, actually, sort of ever since Partygate, by the fact that everyone has talked about the Conservatives as if they, if, as if they are a laughing stock. And I think the Labour Party have been able to sit back and say, look, they're a laughing stock. We're not a laughing stock. So we're the serious people. We're the serious people. We're not going to you know, put, put the whole country into crisis. We can, in fact, get the country out of crisis because we're not crazy. Now, it's, I think performances like that from Rishi Sunak mean that these political journalists are all going to start taking the Conservative Party much more seriously again. Like literally, if, if you watch BBC News when Trust sort of resigned, the mockery on even the normally like straight deadpan news was just unbelievable. I think that's going to end. I think the idea that Labour can just sit back and wait for the Tories to implode now looks less tenable than it did when Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were, were leading. And I completely agree with you, Dahlia. That means that ideology is going to have to start coming into this. Right. If, if, if Sunak is saying, I'm a competent guy, but I'm implementing cuts, then Starmer has to be able to say, well, I'm also an, a competent guy and I wouldn't be implementing cuts. I wouldn't be making you poorer. But I, I, I'm not really hearing that. It seems like he's still using the same attack lines he was using against Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. You know, you guys, you're all, it's so chaotic over there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Doesn't really work with Rishi Sunak because he just sort of, he just seems competent, right? I, and I don't think that that means anyone should elect him, but I think it means we need to move from the idea of politics as as just presentation to actually some ideological disagreement. Because I think if you move it onto ideology, you're in a situation we are in now. The NHS is close to collapse. People's mortgages are going up. Rents are going through the roof. You can win that argument, but you have to have it. If you don't have it, then things could get risky. And I, I don't think Kiyosama rose to the challenge today, quite frankly. Let's look at another part of PMQs where Sunak indicated a significant shift from trust on the question of fracking. Green Party MP Caroline Lucas is asking the question. The Prime Minister's reckless predecessor took a wrecking ball to nature, prompting millions of members of the RSPB, the National Trust and the Wildlife Trust to rise up in opposition. Yesterday, he promised to fix her mistakes as well as to uphold the party's 2019 manifesto. So if he is a man of his word, will he start by reversing the green light she gave to fracking, since it's categorically not been shown to be safe, and instead maintain the moratorium that was pledged in that very moratorium, in that very manifesto that he has promised to uphold? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I've already said I, I stand by the manifesto on that, but I, what I would say is that I'm proud that this government has passed the landmark Environment Act, putting more protection for the natural environment than we've ever had, with a clear plan to deliver. And I can give the Honourable Lady my commitment that we will deliver on all those ambitions. We will deliver on what we said at COP, because we care deeply about passing our children an environment in better state than we found it ourselves. So Caroline Lucas seemed happy there, and Downing Street have since confirmed that the government will be keeping the ban on fracking. But there's another aspect of energy policy where we're still waiting to hear from this government, and that's, will they drop the effective ban on onshore wind? That's been in place since the David Cameron years. Liz Truss was, it seemed, planning to change the law so that it would be allowed, so that people would be able to start onshore wind farms. Now, it was one of the very rare decent policies of her government. It hadn't yet been announced, but it's sort of been briefed to the newspapers. And there are fears that Sunak will keep the ban in place. I think both of them during the leadership campaign, sort of trying to appeal to Tory members, said, oh, no, we couldn't possibly put any any wind farms um, on dry land. It was being briefed that in Team Trust and Team Quarteng, they were actually going to change the rules so that it would be possible um, to have onshore wind, which would have been a good policy, as I say, one of the what is more rare than a good policy out of the Trust Quarteng government, but that was one of them. And the word on the street, what people seem to be indicating is that Sunak is going to now reinstate the ban on onshore wind, or at least not not get rid of it, because I don't think the change had yet been made. Dahlia, what do you make of this? I suppose some good news, fracking isn't going ahead. Um, but as I say, not too much reason to go overboard with enthusiasm when it comes to Rishi Sunak and climate change. Yeah, I mean, this is someone who flies on private jets, who I'm sure his, you know, £14,000 a year heated swimming pool doesn't help with, um, with you know, doesn't indicate a commitment to 
to climate, to tackling climate change. Obviously, with, you know, going ahead with the ban on fracking, um, it does indicate a kind of slight diversion from the most rabid, death-driven uh, factions of the party, represented most by, you know, your Jacob Rees-Moggs and your Nadine Dorries, etc. As you've pointed out, it in no way means that we are in any way looking at a government that is going to match the challenge of climate breakdown, the time-sensitive challenge of climate breakdown, um, not just because he has left intact the baton on onshore wind farms, but, you know, it just says so much that even though we have now fewer than 10 years to take the kind of action that we need to reverse the most catastrophic or to prevent the most catastrophic impacts of climate change, and the biggest win we can see is the continuation of a ban on a on a practice that we know is incredibly destructive to the environment, not only in a long-term sense of contributing to climate breakdown, but also in a short-term sense in terms of the immediate ecological impact of fracking. It really shows us just how far away we are from the kind of transformative thinking that we need in order to actually meet the challenge of climate breakdown that the furthest that we've got is not continuing an unnecessary and highly destructive um, environmental practice that should have been off the table, you know, several years ago, if not decades ago. It's still unfortunate to me that the time that we are, this precious time that we have, instead of using it to think creatively and radically about what it might look like to decarbonize our economy, what it might look like to green our energy system, and to, you know, retrofit homes with, with insulation and to do all of these things that not only would help to prevent the worst excesses of climate breakdown, but could actually make so many people's lives better. Instead, what we're left with is the kind of measly crumbs of continuing the ban of fracking within a broader picture of a government that has not given any indication that they are at all interested in even stopping the extraction of fossil fuels, which is the first step that we need to take. It's kind of the, the bare minimum, isn't it? Not digging more fossil fuels out of the ground. Well, I suppose that's only the fracking question, right? We, we're still having new licenses for oil and gas. The fracking issue, I think why the opposition to that has been successful is because you've got this this cross-section, this, this broad coalition, which includes both environmentalists and environmentalists and Tory NIMBYs who don't want um, fracking in, in their neighbourhoods. I think that's that's why you've had success there, whereas the argument is much harder. Well, not, not the argument, let's say, but the campaign is harder to win when it comes to offshore oil and gas because Tory nimbyism doesn't come into it quite a powerful force. Straight on. On navaramedia.com right now, you can find this piece by The Economist Richard Murphy. In it, he warns that Rishi Sunak could crash the economy. Ultimately, though, he says it will depend on the choices Sunak makes next month. So in the piece, Murphy says this. Sunak can do austerity, as he is obviously inclined to do, and he can let interest rates rise, as the Bank of England is inclined to do. But if they do one or either of those, let alone both, our economy will go into a deep recession and millions will not only be unable to afford the basics of living, they may not be able to afford housing either. Alternatively, Sunak can do what a good Keynesian would do in this crisis and spend his way out of it as he did when COVID hit. It's that or crash the economy. The choice is his, but only one option will stop angry parents unable to feed their children from forcibly venting their anger. And that's what I fear will happen if he goes for austerity. Now, earlier today, I spoke to Richard Murphy and I started by asking him what would happen if Sunak does go on to deliver an austerity budget and the Bank of England decides to raise interest rates. That combination is sufficient to send the UK economy straight into a very deep recession, by which I mean there will be many people, millions of people who will not be able to afford their monthly outgoings, whether that be the rent, the mortgage, the food, the cost of getting to work or whatever else it might be that they have to pay for. Quite simply, interest rates alone will force many people out of their homes, whether that be because of the mortgage going up or because rents go up. And rents go up when interest rates go up because many landlords have themselves got a mortgage. But we're also seeing, obviously, the cost of inflation in food prices. We've seen that going up by about 17% over the last year. These things are fundamental. But 
more important, well, no, not more important than that, but as a consequence of that, of course, households that are stretched to the absolute limit and beyond so they can't pay their bills and are at threat of eviction aren't spending money on anything else either. So they're not buying coffees, they're not going to the cinema, they're not going out to buy clothes because, well, they're just not going out, so they don't want to buy new clothes, they don't need new clothes. And therefore, there will be a spin-off effect into the rest of the economy, which means that vast numbers of people who are employed in these businesses that are dependent upon our discretionary spending on the fun things in life will also be under threat. And they employ many younger people, many people on their pay, and there will be significant unemployment as a result. This is just going to be horrendous. And what is more, the government's deficit is going to rise as a result because there'll be more people claiming benefits, because there'll be more people unemployed, there'll be more people claiming universal credit because they won't be able to get overtime or whatever else in other jobs. And therefore, the government's whole plan of cutting its expenditure by imposing austerity is likely to fail. So your suggestion as to the response that Rishi Sunak should have to this crisis is you say, look, there might be unemployment around the corner, people are struggling with the cost of living. What he should do is spend money, increase government spending. Now, the counter to that would be we're in a situation where we've got 10% inflation. And if the government were to increase spending right now, that would just spiral inflation further out of control. I mean, how would you respond to, to that critique? Inflation is simply a comparison of prices between this year and last year. It's really not rocket science. It is the increase in the overall level of prices between one year and the next. Now, we had a massive spike of in, in inflation after February this year because of the war in Ukraine. And all sorts of things began to go through the roof in a way they hadn't before. There'd been a bit of inflation before then. I fully accept that. That has already, by the way, left the system because all the causes of inflation after we reopened from COVID have gone, except perhaps car prices. But everything else from that era has gone. Basically, building materials and all sorts of other costs have gone down now. But Come March next year, the comparison will be between March 2023 inflated prices and March 2022 inflated prices. Now, that doesn't stop the prices being inflated, but it does mean inflation goes down automatically. And I guarantee it will happen next year unless we get another war or unless we get another massive COVID outbreak of such scale that we have to potentially do furlough of such scale again. The, the government will really be pu pumping vast amounts of money into the economy. Neither of those are at all likely. They are not going to repeat for the time being. And therefore, inflation is going to come down. So we don't need to worry about the inflation rate as such. What we need about, to worry about is the sheer affordability of living. And that is based upon my concern about people not being able to put food on their tables, their children going hungry, and not being able to provide a roof over their heads. Now, I would always argue those things are more important than an inflation index, because frankly, this is about the reality of living in an inflation index. As history has always shown, reverses within a fairly short period of the peak. But in this case, I guarantee the peak is going to reverse because simple maths requires that it does. Therefore, let's not worry about the inflation. Let's worry about the realities. And the realities are there is no consumer demand. So we risk unemployment because of the spill effort over effect of that. There's no private investment going on because businesses are disincentivized by the state of the consumer demand and high interest rates. And there's a threat of a cut of government spending. At the same time as there's no chance of increasing exports because Brexit has killed that opportunity, in which case we are stuck with all the indicators in the economy going down unless the government decides to A, cut interest rates, which it can, and B, increase its own spending, which it can, albeit by increasing its borrowing, which it can. So we've just had an experience of some unorthodox thinkers going into the Treasury and going into Number 10 Downing Street and deciding that even in a context of high inflation, it doesn't matter if we inflate demand in the economy. In the example of, of Kuateng and Trust, that was by cutting taxes in an unfunded manner. But you seem to be suggesting you know, spending money and it not necessarily having to all be funded by taxes. So, I mean, what have we learned from Trust and Kuateng trying and failing to do that? They said, look, we'll cut taxes. The important thing is growth. And the markets didn't like it. People had their pension funds put at risk. The Bank of England 
now feels like they have to raise rates further than they or higher than they otherwise would have done. What makes you think that wouldn't happen again? Well, first of all, it wasn't growth that spooked the markets. Every one of Truss's intentions was, in fact, signalled in advance. What did spook the markets was the complete failure of Truss and Kwarteng to explain what the consequence of their plan for growth was. So they didn't explain how much borrowing they would need. They didn't explain what the impact of that on interest rates would be. They didn't explain how long it would take for them to bring borrowing down to more normal levels. And at the same time as they announced borrowing of over £200 billion a year, which is what they effectively did but didn't confirm it, they let the Bank of England say simultaneously that it would be selling £80 billion worth of the bonds that it bought during the quantitative easing programme to pay for COVID back into the financial markets. What spooked the markets in that case was that there was a dual plan completely uncoordinated from the Bank of England and the government together to ask for over £300 billion of new money from the markets in one year. It's never happened before. They were very worried about that. They couldn't understand that. And therefore, they said, well, you're going to put up the interest rate. The simple fact is that we could actually knock £80 billion of that demand from the market out by telling the Bank of England, hang on, guys, keep hold of your bonds now. You don't need to sell them at this moment. And we could control some of the rest of the cost by, A, doing some quantitative easing, particularly to cover the cost of the energy crisis. We have used quantitative easing to cover crises in 2008-9, and we've used it to cover COVID. Why can't we use it to cover the 60-plus billion that we're going to do now? We could refine the calculation of interest that the government is going to owe, which, by the way, is technically completely flawed, in my opinion, and I've been in long correspondence with the Office for National Statistics on this point. But actually, a lot of the costs that are claimed to arise immediately with regard to interest costs aren't going to be paid for 15 plus years on average. So let's not get too panicked about this. And why do we need to calculate them all and include them in government expenditure now when they won't be paid for up to 15 years instead of spreading them over that period of time? I don't know. But the real interest costs that the government is now incurring is vastly lower than they say. And there isn't borrowing of the extent they say as a result. And we could also do some more taxing, which is, of course, the thing that Kwasi Kwarteng and this trust refuse to do, whether that be windfall taxes on both energy companies and banks, because banks are winning handsomely from the increase in Bank of England base rates. And we could, frankly, tax the rich more. I wouldn't recommend a wealth tax at present. It's far too complicated to put in place. It would take far too long. But there are plenty of other things we could do. We could increase Oh, we could increase uh, the top rate of income tax. We could reduce the rate of, uh, on which tax relief is given on things like pension contributions. We could increase the VAT on private education and private health care. We could increase the national insurance on high earnings over, say, 100000 a year and make people who earn that much money pay the same as people who earn 20000 a year on their earnings. So there's lots of things we could do to improve the tax take from the wealthy, which could more than balance this budget. The problem was Huateng and Trust never said what they were going to do to balance the budget. I've just explained to you how I'd do it. That was Richard Murphy speaking to me earlier. And if you want to read more of his analysis, you can check out the article we referenced over on NavarraMedia.com. The link for that is also in the description below. Next story. Suella Braverman's return to government is pretty scary. That's principally because she's a right-wing nutjob, as both her leadership campaign and her brief stint as Home Secretary made clear. We can't fix uh, the problem of illegal migration because of human rights claims and because of an interventionist, politicised foreign court in Strasbourg, which is intervening to thwart our domestic policies, as we saw last month on the Rwanda flight. And I'm afraid the only solution to this problem, uh, and if we want to be honest with the British people, uh, on delivering on Brexit, on taking back control over our, our borders, is that we do now need to leave the European Convention of Human Rights. I've pledged that, and I challenge all my fellow candidates to make that similar pledge. None of them have. In the context of a mature democracy, with a responsive and pragmatic common law tradition, is it always right that minority groups impose their claims upon the rest of society. We need to make sure that the costs of protecting rights are worth the payoff. Small boats, that really annoys our readers, members here, I'm sure. Why can't you stop the small boats coming? 
It's a deeply entrenched and complex problem. That's a simple answer. And I would love to be here saying, well, claiming victory. I would love to be having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. That's my dream. It's when my will obsession. that happen? It's the Labour Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, to tofu eating, woke karate, dare I say, the anti-growth coalition that we have to thank for the disruption that we are seeing on our roads today. It's completely batshit that she is Home Secretary Ken. I mean, so, so unbelievably reactionary on basically every front. It's not, though, just Braverman's reactionary views which have been causing the biggest political furore when it comes to her return to the Home Office. Rather, it's her getting reappointed as Home Secretary so soon after being sacked from exactly the same job. Tim Shipman, in this weekend's Sunday Times, had the inside story on the events that surrounded Braverman's departure from government in the final days of the Truss administration. So he wrote this weekend, the wheels began to fall off Truss's premiership when Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, alerted Truss that Suella Braverman had committed two breaches of the ministerial code. She had emailed cabinet papers from her ministerial account to her private Gmail account and then on to backbench veteran Sir John Hayes, a fellow right winger. She also copied in someone she thought was Hayes' wife, but was actually an assistant to Andrew Percy, the MP for Brigham Gould. After taking advice from colleagues, Percy spoke to the chief whip, Wendy Morton, who referred the issue to Case, Case again being the cabinet secretary. Braverman was later to argue that the document was simply a written ministerial statement, that she had had a blazing row with Truss about immigration numbers, implying that that was the real reason for her dismissal, and that she had sent it by mistake at 4am. It was, in fact, sent three or four hours later that morning. A number 10 source was withering, quote, she doesn't make any decision without consulting John Hayes, unquote, who had been acting as an unofficial advisor, frequently seen in the Home Office meetings, which had come to the attention of Matthew Rycroft, the permanent secretary. Quote, concerns had been raised prior to Wednesday that Braverman might have been sharing restricted government documents with people she shouldn't have, a source said. Braverman agreed to resign. Initially, it was sort of reported this was just any old ministerial statement that it was a technicality. She should have used her official email address. She actually used um, a personal one. It does seem like there was something more going on here. This was Suella Braverman leaking information to her allies for political purposes because she wanted to run it past them and also emailing it to the wrong people. Right? So, so if, you're, if you're emailing restricted information to the wrong people from your personal account, people you didn't mean to, something is seriously, something is going seriously wrong. Now, after her reappointment by Rishi Sunak, some of those details were put to Foreign Secretary James Cleverly by the BBC's Nick Robinson. Suella made a mistake and she has uh, apologised for that mistake. But ultimately, she has um, very, very recent and current experience uh, within the Home Office. It's clear the Prime Minister wants to make sure that that department is delivering on day one, just like every other department Did in she government. display integrity, and professionalism and accountability? Well, yes. When she, she, just just let me remind people, on. when she sent private cabinet papers to a personal email account, forward them to a Tory backbencher, and then was not fully honest about what she'd done. Well, look, I don't know all the uh, all the details. You're you're making statements there, which I can't uh, confirm. Well, you read them in the, the Sunday Times as I did, so I but, imagine you do know what. But, I know. Well, look, I know what's been written, but I don't. I can't. I can't say. I can't say that um, uh, that uh, yeah, what did or did not happen. But, what but hold I do on, know, a week ago, oh, Mr. Cleverly, a week ago, the government, the Prime Minister of the day, said she'd breached the ministerial code, and you're which, addressing me as I as I'm discussing gossip and speculation. She quit for a breach of the rules. She so I'm asking you a simple question: Did she display integrity? So she uh, she said she made a mistake. She apologised. She stood down. The, Did she display is, integrity, yeah, by, professionalism, by, and accountability? So, yes, by saying that she made a mistake, by apologising for that mistake, for standing down, she did. Okay. The Prime Minister has taken her apology, and he has decided that what he wants is uh, an experienced uh, Home Secretary that has got recent, you know, very, very recent experience at the Home Office, so that we can make sure that that department, like every other department of, uh, of government, is focused on serving Understood. British I want to move people. on to policy. So uh, sure, you, you, you've said that she did uh, display integrity, which will interest people. 
uh, simply by apologising. Let me just put it to you and before we move go. on to policy, that no one in a business, no one in a public service, no one listening in a school or a hospital who broke the rules of their employment would think that merely by apologising, they could be reappointed a week later. Can you think of a single example of that in your normal people life? Make Look, people make mistakes. and I'm Can you think of an, an example in your normal life of anyone coming back to a job they've been stacked from a week later? So, Nick, people make mistakes in their work. No one goes to work with the intention of making a mistake. And, I, and I've and i said this, and I've said this to people uh, in, the, in the Foreign Office, that uh, no one goes to work with the intention of making a mistake. It is really important when someone makes a mistake that they uh, uh, own up to it, that they make it clear what happened, that they uh, uh, apologise if that is relevant. Suella did all those things, and then she stood down. And then she stood down and then got the job back six days later. I thought that was a very effective line of questioning because, you know, he's saying, look, she, she said, sorry, let's move on. Well, he's saying, well, if it was serious enough to sack her six days ago, why is it suddenly not serious enough that she can't get rehired? And that question, is there any other profession in the world where you can do something so serious that you get sacked and then you apologize and you get the job again six days later? And let's remember, this is one of the most important jobs in the country. So. All, all jobs are equally valuable to some degree. You know, there are some that aren't clearly. I mean, being a Tory Home Secretary, I think, probably falls into that category. But it is significant when it comes to national security. Obviously, she's got a lot of power. And the fact that she can quit, or not quit, be sacked six days prior and then get back in the job, that's not the case in any other industry, any other sector. And he didn't have an answer because there isn't one. Dahlia, how effectively skewered do you think James Cleverly was there? And how big a problem is it for Rishi Sunak um, that he has reappointed Suella Braverman six days after she was sacked for having broken the ministerial code? Well, it just goes to show that there is utter continuity between all these different iterations of this, of this government. You know, they like to present that there is, it's a new start, you know, we're under a new leader, forget everything that just happened like five minutes ago, but really, it's the same people doing the same jobs and making the same mistakes. And I even think the idea of it being a mistake is kind of a misnomer because it seems to me that the issue here wasn't just that there was this one email that accidentally left her personal email account. It was that there was a systemic issue of her briefing someone on confidential information and confidential issues who shouldn't be briefed on that regularly. That That's the issue. That's not a mistake. That's a systemic, intentional approach. But I really think that this whole debacle with Braverman, it really encapsulates so much about how dysfunctional the political culture and political system in this country has become now. It really highlights the absurdity of, of the moment that, that we are in, because essentially what happened was... You know, this is someone who is one of the cruelest home secretaries we've seen. You know, she punishes the most vulnerable people for what she deems to be, you know, she deems them to be illegitimate. She thinks they're exploiting the system. Yet this is someone who has absolutely no regard for standards, whether it's standards of international human rights law or ministerial standards. So we have this person, she was fired or resigned or whatever after a few weeks in post. And the reason that she gave, you know, the reason that the official reason that was given was a lie. We all knew at the time that it was a lie. And now we know it is that it wasn't out of this integrity of, you know, I made a mistake and I'm standing down or I disagree with the direction of this government and I'm standing down. It was very clear that she was simply another rat who was fleeing a sinking ship. And she saw it as best for her career to leave at that moment, so that she would be more likely to get on to the lifeboat that was coming to rescue them. So that's Rishi Sunak's government. And so even though 10 minutes ago, she was considered to be unfit to for office, she has returned into the exact same position as if nothing happened. And I think for me, the fact that this has all been done under the charade of integrity, you know, this not only has this been done, and it's as and it is obviously a, a dysfunctional 
um, process, but actually that James Cleverly is defending it under the guise of Suella Braverman or the government having integrity, when integrity is like, despite all of the shifts and all of the changes and the eruptions and disruptions that we have seen over the past four years, the one thing that has remained completely consistent between all these different prime ministers has been lack of lack of integrity, whether it's, you know, Johnson partying whilst telling the nation to lock down, whether it's lying to parliament, whether it's Sunak's tax dodging, or whether it comes to, to whatever, basically. Every, at every stage, we have seen a complete lack of integrity. So I think that the fact that, that this is the guise under which it's being done is, is particularly particularly insulting. And I think that's what this, this Braverman bait and switch really represents. It's emblematic of a broader decay of our political culture, of processes of democratic accountability or democratic standards. And so any mirage that we might have had before, um, that we live in a country with functional democratic processes and, and accountability has now been uh, completely stripped away because essentially what we have now is in the midst of a cost of living crisis coming off the back of a public health crisis. The political class is essentially focused on backstabbing and maneuvering around one, one another in order to hang another title onto their CV, regardless of what happened, what that means for, for the rest of the population and really just lining their path um, for a lucrative post-politics um, career. So, so while the rest of us are still on that sinking ship, you have people on that ship literally just rearranging the furniture. And, and by furniture, I obviously mean uh, home secretaries, because it's essentially the same people delivering the same kind of dysfunctional politics. It's just that the face at the, at the top has changed. Let's go to our final story. It's an entertaining one. You'll enjoy this. Nadine Doris didn't get a cabinet job in Rishi Sunak's reshuffle, but she has found another gig to pursue, this time as a TV host. Yes, the former culture secretary has a guest spot on the Murdoch-owned Talk TV. And this is how her first outing went. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. Coming up on tonight's programme, for a change, a man who is going to clear up a woman's mess. That's Rishi's bow as he enters number 10. As, as you were, Sunak's stability extends to the cabinet with the big beefsteak and all her cages, but Bradman back at home in the home office. Sorry, I just completely messed up. They're in our studio and we've risked them for a clue. Stick around for Just Stop Oil live. <laughs> My favourite bit of that was because her getting it wrong and then apologising was almost like endearing. But then what did she say at the end? That bristing and a clue. <laughs> what, what was that supposed to be? Bristing and a clue. Like I don't understand. You know, I use an auto cue sometimes and I don't know. Like, sometimes I get like the intonation wrong. But what words was she looking at there? Very entertaining. This is someone who, you know, she wanted to get rid of Channel 4. She, she thinks that she knows how the media works. Give her one go in front of an auto cue and it, it all uh, goes hilariously wrong. After struggling with that auto cue, Dory's also struggled to remember the name of her guest. So, um, Richard, I have to ask you about Channel 4. Do you think we should Patrick. be proud? Uh, Patrick, sorry. Do you think we should be proud of programmes like My Massive Cock on Channel 4? Did I just say that? Uh, I'm not interested in that question. Why, why is that a relevant so question? So do you... <laughs> <laughs> Dahlia... I mean, we should have really sat through the whole hour. I haven't. I have to admit, I haven't watched the whole hour of Nadine Dorries on Talk TV. Maybe she really recovered it. It was actually like incredibly insightful hour of television with two minor hiccups. But I mean, can we assume that she's not particularly good at that job? <laughs> that first clip that you showed was literally like watching an episode of Pingu. I was like, "How are you making these noises?" It was so um, incredible to watch. But honestly, like watching that clip, just it just made me appreciate you so much more, Michael. Like you make it look really easy, but it is actually like presenting is, is hard. It's not just that Nadine Doris is apparently untalented at many things. I actually do think it, it is very difficult. And like she, you make it look so easy and people who are good at it make it look easy. But it, it just goes to show like the arrogance. Um, and exactly as you said, the fact that she feels like she can stick her nose um, into, you know, the way Channel 4 
presents politics or the way that Channel 4 operates. And it's like, well, I'd rather watch my massive cock than continue to watch this car crash um, of you trying to string a sentence together um, on the t- on the TV. It's kind of like, you know, as she's trying to get through a sentence, it's like, don't hurt yourself, Nadine. It's okay. You should just, just go. But also what I, what I don't understand here as well, it's like all of these MPs that have these like side hustles and like second careers that they're willing to, that they're able to kind of dip into whenever they like. I'm like, don't you already like have a job? Like, don't you already have constituents and like things to do? Like, why do you have all of this time to be trying to set up these nonsense side hustles that you're not even very good at? Like, I don't have as much time as the Dean Doris apparently has. And my job is definitely nowhere near as important as actually being an MP. So hysterical but also what what were you even doing there in the first place is my is my question maybe that's nadine's excuse is that she had no time to look through the script before it got placed on the autocad because she was so busy diligently responding to uh casework from her constituents i imagine i find <laughs> pingu easier to understand what's going on pingu is articulate in comparison <laughs> To, to that car crash. But yeah, I mean, it is hard, but also why did you even, who let you even try? That's my question. What she was speaking over was the Just Stop Oil protesters pieing the waxwork of Prince Charles in Madame Tussauds. As I understand it, the aim of that, uh, that action was to sort of protest Prince Charles deciding he wasn't going to go to the next COP meeting, so the next sort of UN climate meeting. And obviously it sort of fits in with their pattern of of, of raising the profile of their campaign. Um, but yeah, what, what was it? Can we show it one more time, Fox? This is going to be the last time. As, as you were, student stability extends to the cabinet with the big beefsteak and all the cages, but Bradman back at home in the home office. Sorry, I just completely messed up. <laughs> They're in our studio and we've right, risen for, for a clue. Stick around for <laughs> Just Stop Oil live. No, I cannot, I cannot for the life of me work out what those three words could have possibly been. Yeah, someone's saying, oh, oh they wonder what the subtitles would have said. Maybe we can write in and, and ask what the... <laughs> the subtitle was like, I'm out. I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> we'll have to ask her. If you work in the production at Talk TV, do let us know what was actually written in the autocue. Um, let's wrap up there, Dahlia. It's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening, even though you're feeling poorly. We wouldn't have noticed if you hadn't said at the beginning, you've been so on point. <laughs> I'm hiding under a lot of good makeup, so. <laughs> you've been watching Tisky Sal. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.